This is the Consumed Podcast, featuring conversations with the eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers of California's Central Coast. I'm a food writer and your host, Jamie Lewis. Before we get to the guest, I want to tell you about an event I'm hosting in collaboration with At Her Table, a food festival that celebrates women. The live event is called Apron Strings, a conversation about motherhood and the hospitality industry. And it's happening Tuesday, March 7th from 6 to 8 p.m. at There Does Not Exist Brewing in San Luis Obispo. In this live podcast recording, I'll speak with four mothers who own restaurants, Fabian Tefera of Ebony Slow, Brittany Gonzalez of Central Coast Tacos, Shani Covey of Luna Red and Robin's Restaurant, and Sam Whitaker of Bing's Bao Buns. And we want you in the audience. Admission is free, but you need to RSVP to claim your seat. Head to letsgetconsumed.com slash events for more info and a link to that RSVP. Thanks. I also want to give a shout out to some of the Consumed Podcast sponsors. We all know eating fruits and veggies is an important part of staying healthy. Fresh, local produce has the most flavor and nutrition, but how do you know what's in season locally? Become part of the Tally community as a member of the Tally Farms Box Program. Tally grows their produce and partners with other California farmers to include the freshest and best-tasting local produce you can find anywhere. Farming on the Central Coast since 1948, the Tally family created the Tally Farms Box to make healthy eating easy and affordable. Here's how it works. Select which size box you want, then choose pickup or home delivery and how often you want to get your box. It's flexible for customization and vacation holds, and included in all boxes are tested recipes and storage recommendations. Come be a part of Tally's healthy lifestyle. Visit tallyfarmsbox.com and use promo code CONSUMED for $10 off your first box. That's promo code CONSUMED for $10 off. Eat fresh, eat local, and eat lots of California fruits and veggies for better health. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Rancho Steanoveros and Native Nine Wine are excited to announce they've reopened wine-tasting hospitality in Santa Barbara County, and they're currently taking reservations for private tasting and tours. These are hosted by the winery's new brand ambassador and educator, Wes Hagen, a 30-year veteran of Santa Barbara wine growing and winemaking. His tours are the stuff of legends. If you're ready for a dive into the greater wisdom and fun of Santa Barbara wine, a deep tasting of many vintages and wines in a picturesque setting with world-class hospitality, salami, and bread, you need to come experience this. Tastings and tours are $50 per person, a fee that's 100% refundable through a wine purchase or by joining the wine club. Get a reservation by texting Wes at 805-450-2324. Rancho de Anaveros is also having an open house in Los Alamos on Friday, April 21st from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. For $30 per person, you'll get wine, stories, and history. Come experience this winery designated by Wine & Spirits magazine as one of the top 100 wineries in the world. For more information, visit ranchosdeanaveros.com. Okay, on to the episode. Sarah Rowan is a food writer who lives in San Luis Obispo, but who left her heart in New Orleans. She lived there for 17 years, working first as a line cook in professional kitchens and later as the food critic for the alternative weekly paper called Gambit. Sarah grew up in the Midwest, so she was an outsider in New Orleans but came to love the people and flavors of the place so much, she joined the Southern Foodways Alliance, a nonprofit that records and promotes the food traditions throughout the American South. She also wrote the book Gumbo Tales, Finding My Place at the New Orleans Table, whose chapters focus on different dishes and their champions throughout the city. 
Now a resident of the Central Coast, Sarah considers herself still in transition from urban New Orleanian to rural Californian. Listen in as we talk about Hurricane Katrina, discovering Catano Brothers Linguisa, and refinding her voice. Here's Sarah Rowan. Thank you for inviting me. I am so happy you're here. I mean, it's been a yeah. long time in coming anyway. Yeah. I've, I've meant to. Um, so I'll just give a tiny little recap of how we met. Um, my doctor said, hey, how's the writing going? And I said, it's fine. It's good. Um, she said, I have a friend, a, a parent at our school that I met named Sarah Rowan, who is, um, she's a, a food writer too. And I was like, God, well, how have I never come across her before? Well, I think you were pretty new to the area, weren't you? Yeah, and I kind—I wasn't writing about food. Yeah, at not, the time. not like actively. Yeah. Okay, so she gave me your name, and I think she even gave me your number or something. Oh, no, 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 no. She asked me for my business card. I gave it to her. She did give it to you. Nothing happened. And then we're sitting at the Performing Arts Center for the Messiah sing-along, and I just happened to be sitting next to this person with angelic blonde hair. And um, we got to talking at intermission, discovered at the end of our conversation that we actually knew who the other was. And um, I said, I have, I, I have got to get to know this person better. So as we were setting up this interview, you shared that you have a book. And I think I kind of like you know, somewhere ambiently knew that you had a book, but then I bought it and I read it. I read a third of it because I'm a slow reader. Um, it's so good, Sarah. Yeah. It's so wonderful. And I realized it was how many years ago that it came out? A lot of years ago. Um, 2008. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's called Gumbo Tales, um, Finding My Place at the New Orleans Table. And it is so... It's the kind of writing that got me into this at all. I mean, I, I do love a good cookbook, but what I like about your kind of writing is it's memoir, it's highlighting other people's lives and, and the things that they're good at. It's also intensely regional, obviously, if it's about New Orleans, but I love those kind of deep dives into... A place, and I also like that you write it from the perspective of a, new, of a newbie, so that I can, as the reader, kind of get to know it too. So I have so many questions. Why? Why did you wind up in New Orleans? First of all, thank you for having me. It has oh. been a long time coming. I kept that business card on my desk for a long time, <laughs> and um, just didn't have the courage to reach out. But when no. you sat next to me at that concert I'm like I think that's her yeah I think it's time yeah um so it's great to be here so serendipitous I loved it I wound up in New Orleans um I was just talking about this last night because my husband uh we weren't married at the time but he got into medical school there Mm. um but I'd visited New Orleans for the first time and it was the first time I'd ever been in the south at all besides Florida Mm -hmm. which kind of doesn't count not the not the way I did yes right right um I went to New Orleans for the first time a year before he got accepted there. We went to a wedding for some college friends, and I was just immediately smitten. I just, I felt like I'd walked into, like, Neverland. I just immediately connected, and I was like, Matt, you have to go here. And and Tulane wasn't really what he was angling for, Mm -hmm. Um, but it wound up being a great fit for him. So anyway, a year later, he got into Tulane, and we moved down there. Yeah. How old were you yeah. when you moved in? 29. Okay. So still, yeah. you know, it, formative, especially as a couple, kind of yeah, getting to know a place. And we're kind of late bloomers. Yeah. So um, it was way pre-kid and mm-hmm. still in our extended adolescence. I mean, not so much him because he... <laughs> had to hit the books immediately but for me um I just had like a just unlimited time to explore and yeah yeah did you know that you wanted to write about food no I knew so I'm just one of those people that um always thought they were a writer because I was good at it growing up that was my strength Mm -hmm. rather than I was a word person not a number person same Um, and I was, you know, the editor of my school newspaper, Mm. 
things like that. <clears throat> but and I really wanted to go to journalism school, and I didn't get into journalism school. Mm. And um, and that that sent me down a different path for college. Um, I went to a great book school, mm-hmm. and which is where I met my husband. Where'd you go? It's called St. John's College. It's a okay. tiny little college. Um, there's a campus in Annapolis, Maryland, and one in Santa Fe. Mm. And after that super intellectual experience, I really wanted to work with my hands. Like, I just wanted to get out of my head. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked in the service industry all through high school and college. And... Um, and so I became a line cook mm. for like seven years, which is what I was doing when I moved to New Orleans, but I was really ready. I was realizing that I didn't have what it took to be a chef. Yeah. <laughs> My body was already falling apart. I wasn't even 30 yet. Yeah. And, um, and so I was kind of, you know, thinking like I've always wanted to be a writer, but I actually haven't had no professional experience doing yeah. that. Yeah. But when I moved down there, the city right, the city now is kind of like a, a happening place. Mm-hmm. And um, since Hurricane Katrina in 2005, it has sort of like become a place that collects people from the coasts mm-hmm. because it's, it's a tough city in a lot of ways, but it's very livable, like economically, mm-hmm. especially if you're employed <laughs> Yeah. Um, by a you know an LA or a New York employer, but at the time that we moved down there, it really wasn't a city that collected lots of people. Mm-hmm. And there were there was a job opening for um, a restaurant critic for the daily the sorry the weekly the alternative news weekly, mm-hmm. and they couldn't find anyone. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of lucked into that job. You'd never you didn't have like a a portfolio of pieces oh that is so cool I did not but I wrote like a couple of mock yeah. reviews of yeah. um restaurants in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and I got lucky because the editor also went to my went to my alma mater yes yeah that's so great that's so cool what was your yeah. first um interview like were you <laughs> were you nervous I was nervous but I sent them my like my sp- my mock reviews before I met them. And so we'd had some sort of, I don't even remember. It was like pre-email. I don't even think I emailed Mm. back then, but um, we'd had some sort of exchange. I was really excited to meet somebody else who'd gone to our alma mater because that's kind of rare. There are only 400 students there at a time. So, um, but yeah, I was nervous, but they were so welcoming and, and eager, but I was way more nervous uh, to write my first review because yes. it, especially at that time, it's a, was it, it is, but much more than was a really parochial place mm-hmm. and like an outsider writing about, um, a food culture that is so ingrained yeah. and that people have such strong opinions about was, it was very intimidating. Yeah. Um, forgive me. That's actually what I meant. Your first interview, like, Oh, with somebody I to write the piece because I I would be really intimidated. Well, and I mean I was to do the first piece, but I did I was in a place that I was familiar with, you know, you coming in as an outsider. And I think I don't I've never been to New Orleans, so I don't know, but um my perception is that insiders and outsiders exist. Like if you're from there you have a different uh, you're coming with a different lens than someone from outside. Yeah, I mean, if you're at a, you know, a lot of what I will say in this interview um, comes out of my experience there. And again, it's a little bit different now because there have been, there's been such an influx of people from mm-hmm. other places. But in my experience, you know, you would go to a social occasion and people wouldn't ask what you do. People never ask what you do for a living there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would ask what high school you went to. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, that's very, you know? <laughs> very local. Yeah, and so yes, I was very nervous, and I got hate mail. Why? Um, because what do I know about gumbo? Oh, you know, gosh. what do I know? It was a good learning experience. Um, in fact, after I'd been doing the job for just a little while, I, I had lunch somewhere with my editor, and somebody called him over to their table to let him know how wrong it was that they had like an outsider 
writing restaurant reviews now and I was right there and the person knew that that's who I was and I could hear the whole thing oh my god now people are very friendly down there in general but they're very um there are big opinions about food yeah yes uh I wanted to if it's okay with you is it all right if I read a little bit of gumbo tales sure you don't want me to and I don't care it's fine no because um I think that this it's just the opening the opening lines um are so they set such a good scene for someone who is an outsider. I think you establish really quickly that you're coming from the outside. So <clears throat> this is the chapter on gumbo, and it's called A Higher Education. Not long after I moved to New Orleans, my younger sister Stephanie flew down from our home state of Wisconsin to evaluate the city as a prospective home. Exercising New Orleans' most persuasive means of sedu- seduction, dinner, I took her to the great neighborhood restaurant is it Liuza's? Liuza's. Liuza's restaurant and bar, and ordered like mad. A beta amber beer in frosted schooners, fried green tomatoes with shrimp remoulade, a stuffed artichoke, fried chicken, seafood gumbo. Ew, Stephanie said, <laughs> inhaling when the gumbo arrived. It smells like Homerson's Pond. Her judgment hung over the table carpeted in algae, murk, and other scummy aquatic things we'd never dreamed of eating as little girls. Homerson's Pond began where our paternal grandparents' front yard dropped off. We'd never so much as dipped a toe in it, but the pond had fired our childhood imaginations and filled our free time. We'd poked branches into the thick mud that surrounded its expanse and watched older boys slide hockey pucks across its frozen plain. We'd known absolutely that its depths contained hideous beasts, swamp monsters, alligators, quivering spiders, crayfish. Stephanie went wan at the scent of Laiuza's gumbo, just like our mom does when she detects anything fishy. It's so good. I mean, I could go on and on, and I'm sorry I kind of butchered it, but um, it's the the um, command of language and the metaphor, and just like it's very disarming, and it's hard to believe that you didn't study writing. It's, but it comes from the within side, you know, as we say in our house, it comes from the within side. It's something that's innate. And it sounds like, you know, you're saying that you did it well as a kid. Um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that you did it well as a kid. Well, that's very kind. I will point out that I did that before I had a kid (laughs) when I had a lot of free time and I probably worked on that chapter for three years. Yeah. So... Um, but thank you. That yeah. made me want to go to Liuza's with you. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, bye, guys. <laughs> Let's go. Well, yeah, uh, I'm glad you bring up the kid thing because it changes things, does it not? I mean, yeah. your ability to, like, watershed and rework and rework and rework something. And God, and just the research and going to all these places – um, that takes a considerable amount of time. Yeah. And nighttime and nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of nighttime work. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel really lucky. I mentioned earlier that I was trying to get pregnant through, um, most of my thirties and the one silver lining of it not working out was that I got to birth a book. Yep. I'm not sure it would have happened afterwards for sure. Okay. Well, so, um, the book itself, it takes a chapter, each chapter focuses on a different um, food way, I suppose. And there are some that surprised me that I didn't know about. Um, what, what do they call shave ice? Snowballs. Snowballs. Um, and right now I'm in the, I just wrapped up the Italian chapter about um, all the different styles of Italian food and the Sicilian influence in the city, things I just had no idea about. Um, and it really makes me want to go. It also reading the book makes me feel like there is no way you could tackle New Orleans in a week, like no possible way. It feels big. That's interesting. It is a small town in a lot of ways. I could draw up an itinerary for you. I'm, I'm into it. I'm totally <laughs> I'll say into that. It. I'll say though, it's humbling. I, I, um, the James Beard Award nominations are out right now, yeah. and 
<clears throat> I read through to see what New Orleans chefs or mm-hmm. restaurants are nominated this year, and I've been gone for six and a half years, and I didn't recognize most of the restaurant names. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's changed a lot. I mm-hmm. will. I, I you could get a lot done. You could cover a lot of ground in a week. Okay. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, one interesting thing about the snowball chapter is that. Um, sort of the centerpiece of that chapter and my experience of snowballs in that city is a place called Hanson Snowbliz, mm-hmm. which still exists. It's a cinder block building um, that that is in the neighborhood where we used to live. And it's it's tempting to call what they what they call snowballs down there snow cones, but mm-hmm. I'm going to resist because it's really like the ice is it's shaved fine. so fine yeah. that it's like snow that when it's done well. Yeah, yeah, it's different. Um, but I wrote that chapter and I had a New York publisher and a New York editor who was pretty hands off, uh, in a way that was a little bit, uh, disarming. Um, Mm. but when I sent her my full manuscript, one of the only things she said was, I'm not sure about that snowball chapter. I'm not sure it's necessary. And mm-hmm. she was a you know born and bred New Yorker and had never been to New Orleans. And there were many battles I did not win mm-hmm. in putting out that book. But that one, I said that is non-negotiable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because it was really close to my heart, but mm-hmm. also like New Orleanians, like the snowball and especially Hanson's is like sacrosanct it's critical (laughs) yeah it's critical it's a critical touchstone yeah so how did you wind up um with an editor and a publisher so I got lucky too like uh you know I'm not trying to be falsely modest but that was a different time in book publishing (laughs) yes and um I I had an agent that I'd worked with I hadn't actually, I hadn't even actually worked with him, but I'd had conversations with him and he liked the, you know, my sample chapter mm-hmm. and we put together a proposal and he shopped it around and there was one publisher interested in it and it was W.W. W. Norton. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a very small advance, yeah. but he, I think I, sp- I'm sure I spent more money making that book than, um, than my advance, but you know, he said like, this is your chance. This is, this isn't going to come around again. Yeah. Well, I think it is a very different time also, not that it wasn't deserving of, of attention and, and work and being put out there. I think now there's so much emphasis on having a platform Mm -hmm. and that wasn't even a conversation, which is a crazy thing to say out loud. Having a platform. What is your platform? Well, the numbers are so astronomically high um, to even bridge the gap, to even get a conversation. Um, and I don't know this from experience. I know this from, um, well, no, I, you know what? I take it back. I do kind of know it from experience because I've had a couple ideas that I wanted to bring to um, a national publisher and I have been instructed that it wouldn't be a good idea because it would be kind of fruitless if I didn't have numbers. And the interesting thing is it would have been a book with the first lady of Kentucky bourbon who I met at a couple of conferences and we really struck up and had a rapport and she wanted to write her memoir. And if the first woman involved in operations with Maker's Mark and Jim Beam and all that, if she doesn't have the platform, mm-hmm. which we were like completely unsure that she would, we all decided just to walk away because why, why put in all the effort? And it's humbling as someone collaborating with her, but what's that like for her? It's I mean, so that, hard. That's the, I've given my agent, a couple ideas since Gumbo Tales, and that's the answer mm-hmm. to me too. You know, and like having an existing book isn't the platform anymore. It's insane. It's you know you have to have a lot more than that. But um, I mean, you know, we can talk off air about things, but there there are other ways to go about it. Yeah, these days, like actually, I think writers. I mean, you don't necessarily have a better chance of making money. But that was never, that that was never really what it was about. Um, But it's totally possible to self-publish and be successful these days. And that is very new. Yeah, that's on the table for sure. Yeah. Um, 
But I mean, back to this style of writing, I think, I don't know how much of a market there is for like MFK, MFK Fisher style or Elizabeth David style writing, but I'm definitely, I mean, that's like all I read these days. I just love that. So it was really serendipitous to see that, oh my gosh, this is what you have. But that's mm-hmm. not the first thing that I thought about with you. The first thing I was thinking is your um, association with Southern Foodways Alliance, which I don't think people here have an appreciation of how powerful and significant that organization is. Um, can you, like, in a nutshell, say what it is? It is... Um a nonprofit that celebrates, documents, studies, um, breaks down southern food, southern foodways, southern mm-hmm. food culture, um, and that's very broad. It's not necessary. I mean, it's located at the university. So it's a nonprofit, but it's housed at the Center for Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, mm-hmm. and it's partially funded by the university mm-hmm. it like operates independently and dependently at the same time and um so the organization does a few different things it has an academic arm like it has an endowed professorship mm-hmm. at the university um that it fundraised for and uh, um supports it has an oral history arm mm-hmm. And I was both on the board of the organization and I was employed, you know, I mean, nepotism maybe, but um, as an oral historian, <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of oral history work in Louisiana for them. Um, they make short films mm-hmm. and host events. When I was involved, the event, port, the event part of the organization was really strong. I feel like they're kind of... Um, COVID may have... Yeah, COVID might have had something to do with it, um, but they're they're they have a journal called Gravy, mm-hmm. um, a monthly journal, and I feel like they're kind of more in the media realm yeah. these days than yeah. um, events. So, yeah, so and it's they that organization studies, celebrates, documents um, Southern foodways, like I said, really broadly. So they don't even really necessarily stick to the geographic south yeah it's like the spiritual south okay right so people who have moved on but are still like some a chef who winds up in new york but is doing their you know the food that they became acquainted with yeah or someone who is in chicago but learned to cook you know at the at the arm of their grandmother who, yeah. you know, was from Alabama. Like, yeah. Or somebody who is um, making Southern-style barbecue in on the Central Coast. Yeah. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and there's also, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I wish I had, like, the, the words at the tip of my tongue, but there's a very strong... Um, racial and cultural reconciliation mm-hmm. the flavor to the organization. Mm-hmm. Or it would have to be. Like a lot of uh like a lot of things in our world, it's mostly run by white people. Yeah. And so it's not always perfect, but the spirit is. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It's not always perfectly executed, but that's a huge part of the conversation, no matter or it was, you know, I was on the board for 10 years again I've hmm. I haven't been very actively I'm a member and everything but I haven't been very actively involved for the past six and a half seven years but that was always part of the conversation mm-hmm. is um race and yeah. reconciliation and cultural appropriation and all that kind of thing yeah I'm happy to hear that because um a lot of people didn't even know what those words meant until 2020 but uh I don't see how you could be writing about Southern foodways without approaching race. I mean, you'd have to. There's so much that is this, again, I'm speaking as somebody who's not an expert, but what I see is this melange of, you know, the foodways from Africa that came over across the Atlantic, um, 
melding with, you know, French influence, um, with colonial influences, um, English colonial, just, and, and Native American, and the result being a real mixture of all of those. And so <clears throat> I think that you would have to talk about that. And the, and the culinary, uh, the cuisine of necessity, so much of it. I remember a chef was telling me that, he's like, do you know why chitlins are, um, you know, from the South? Why, why it's a foodway of the South? It's because chitlins were the, the scraps that were thrown to enslaved people on plantations. And um, so that became something that they developed into a very, you know, rich, culturally rich, culinarily rich um, dish. And there's so much about that. I did a story on fried chicken one time and discovered that chicken often was the animal that was used um, to give to enslaved people for them to cook. And there's so much there when we taste those kinds of foods that we are so unaware of, so much underneath the surface. Um, And so I'm glad to hear that that's kind of being dredged up and exposed by Southern foodways. Yeah, I mean, it is always you know, no pun intended, on the table, that topic, it is very difficult. Mm, mm -hmm. It does not, like I said, it's not always gracefully executed. Um, It's not always, it's never an easy conversation. And, you know, speak, I mean, I'm sort of speaking on behalf of the Southern Foodways Mm. Alliance, but also myself. There's always the, myself personally, there's always the question of like, do I even have the right to tell this story? Like yeah. who, mm-hmm. who should be telling this story? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's a that's always a really big question. And uh, I came up against that a lot because it's like, well, not really me, except no one else is telling it. So then you I know? have I and, totally and so then you step agree. in, and it's it's not always. <clears throat> but then, are you telling it the right way? And so, yeah, those are all questions that get asked on the daily with that organization, Hmm. which is something I really respect. Yes, totally. Totally. Well, so all of this begs the question. I mean, I I don't mean to wrap your identity up with your time in the South, but you did write a book about it. I know. (laughs) I'll own that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, and you fell in love with it. You could tell. Um, so then I got to know, why are you in California, not just California, but why are you in rural central coast of California? So my husband is more um, of an outdoorsy person, mm-hmm. not in the hardcore way that people can be here, you know, like oh, rock climbing like, and yeah, stuff, yeah, but just, yeah. he's sort of just reju- gets rejuvenated likes to be outside. by being close to nature. Yes. And, um, and it was kind of his turn. Like we, he, he's the one who took us to New Orleans, but I'm the one who kept us there. Mm-hmm. So he did his residency there for my sake. Um, and then once we, not that he didn't love it too, but it's like not his heart's place as mm-hmm. much as it is mine. Um, so he was kind of getting a little antsy and I could tell, and it was kind of his turn. And then we had a, we moved here when my son was turning seven and he got real big real fast and mm-hmm. outgrew the neighborhood playground. You know, we lived in the city mm-hmm. and he is a very active uh, human, but not really a team sports person. Yeah. And so it was like, well, what, where, what's he going to do? Like, mm. we don't really have a yard. We have this urban life. He doesn't like fit in the playground anymore. Mm-hmm. He has all this energy. Um, it felt like time. I mean, there would have been options to like move to the suburbs in New Orleans, but because my husband was kind of getting antsy and because my husband, who is not from California, he's from Belgium, mm-hmm. but his mom and his sister live in California now. Oh, okay. His sister went to college in L.A. and stayed there. Mm-hmm. And then his mom, maybe 15 years ago, um, moved to Santa Barbara. Uh, and okay. so it was just sort of like a natural place to... We, I mean, we'd visited both of those places extensively. And so Matt started looking around for jobs mm-hmm. um, and found one here. Yeah. Is he with a hospital? 
Yeah, he's at Sierra Vista. Okay. okay. Yeah, he's a pediatric hospitalist there. That's a pretty big change. Gosh, I can't, I mean, I, in like every possible way. Um, I mean, climate and uh, lifestyle aside, there's also like 2% of San Luis Obispo County is black. And New Orleans, I don't know what the numbers are, but that's quite different. Um, how, how is that for you? in terms of raising somebody and, you know, wanting them to, pers- what they perceive as normal? Hmm. Well, I think that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. I have to say, like, I didn't, I didn't, I'm still transitioning. <laughs> yeah. And how many years later is it? Six and a half. <laughs> hey, you know what? That transition takes a long long time transition in general to a new place. Some people say you start feeling like home after three years. I I mean, it could be a decade. It honestly is. I'm just giving you a pass. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I, yeah. So I think I'm still transitioning and not because I don't see how glorious living in this place is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obvious. Like, look, we look out our window. I know. Look at what we see. No, I know. You know, and I, I take, um, full advantage of, I mean, most of what this place offers, I'm still learning, but, Mm. um, but I miss, you know, it's a big deal to move away from, we lived there for 17 years. So moving away from any place as an adult Mm -hmm. where you've lived for 17 years would be, um, a big deal when it, as it pertains to raising my son, um, there are a there are a lot of problems in New Orleans too. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, it's a much more diverse place. Mm-hmm. Um, Black History Month wasn't a month. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. like you're living like, in it. Like, what's the point? You're yeah. talking about it all the time. It's yeah. not like a special occasion to talk about Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you. But again, like, where would he be running around right now? Yeah. I don't know. So there are pluses and minuses. It is, it does hurt a little bit now that he, he clearly identifies with this place more than New Orleans. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And other than the fact that like any special occasion he wants gumbo. Um, but like, this is his, this is, he's not having a hard time with the transition, put it that way. Yep. You know, like this is his place. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I have to honor that, you know? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. We go, we visit as much as we can. Mm -hmm. I, we go to the cities when we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to hear about Katrina, what that was like for you. Another giant question. Um, and maybe how it impacted the food culture of the city. Yeah, so Katrina, Hurricane Katrina happened in August of 2005. Um, we were on vacation when it happened. We were on like kind of an extended vacation because my husband had... Um, I don't remember. He was like between things. And Mm -hmm. so we were gone for a few weeks and we were actually out of the country for most of it. And we didn't, I mean, we were so, it was so, we were all so much less tied into like electronics at that time. We didn't check the news. We came back to New York, um, like the day before Katrina hit Mm -hmm. And heard about the news and that I started calling friends. And that is the day that I learned to text. Oh, my goodness. I'd never text, texted before then, but that's how we all kept in touch. Um, and then we actually moved back to the city pretty much more quickly than most people. Number one, because Matt could get in with his hospital ID. Mm-hmm. And number two, because we lived in the 20% of the city that didn't flood. Wow. And so our house was dry. Um mm-hmm. We didn't have power right away, but it came on pretty quickly. Like, we got power before, I mean, our friends were coming over to shower and, and hang out and stuff, our few friends that were in the city. But, it, I mean, it was a it was really a ghost town. I mean, 
in our, I mean, I can think of the three people who were living in our neighborhood at the time when we mm-hmm. first moved back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and we actually, I say that we lived in New Orleans for 17 years, but we were actually gone for a couple of years because, um, post-Katrina, because my husband was doing a pediatric residency, and when the city emptied of children, there was no oh residency goodness. for a couple of years. Yeah. So he went, um, he found a position in Philadelphia, and he went He went really soon. I followed it a year later. Um, and then we ultimately went back to New Orleans when he was done there. But the food culture was really, it's... It's kind of easy to get to overly romanticize like everything that was lost. Mm-hmm. There was a lot lost. I mean, there are whole neighborhoods that haven't been really repopulated and rebuilt wow. and all of the corner stores almost and, 20 years later. Yeah. Right? I mean, to, yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, you know, the corner stores in that neighbor corner stores were like really important in New Orleans culture. Um, so not only are those people not live there, but those stores are gone and, you know, little mom and pop places, I mean, fine dining places didn't reopen. Now the city is, I would say, culinarily speaking, thriving right now. Um, and so it's not, there are probably more restaurants now than there were Mm. pre-Katrina, I'm Mm -hmm. guessing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't done a count. There's not the same restaurants and it's really, there, it's, I mean, it used to be hard to get a salad there. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, that's what I—that's the chapter I'm in. Your vegetable chapter, where it's like, oh, okay. I am not exaggerating. When my sister-in-law would come from LA and after a day and a half be exhausted by the eating, we yeah. would go to Houston's to get a salad. There like, you go. and it's very different now. I mean, yeah. there's the influences from the coasts have, I mean, I mean, really improved. <laughs> Um, the eating there in a lot of ways, but there is less of the kind of food and eating and culture that I fell in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the neighborhood where my Italian family, um, mm-hmm. that I wrote about in the book, the Fagos, where they lived, um, is no more. And that was like a Italian stronghold. Yeah. And a lot of people just didn't come back. Um, a lot of the people who supported the old school Italian restaurants didn't come back. And so Mm -hmm. one by one, they're kind of falling off. But I have to say, whenever I find myself feeling like an old geezer, you know, like lamenting that, that city has all like part of its magic is that in every way it has been constantly and pretty rapidly evolving, Mm -hmm. um, as it takes in more people from different places, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like, you know, first native Americans Mm -hmm. and then the colonialists and the Africans. And then, um, the, I like a lot of Irish when, when New York got a big influx of like Irish and Italian immigrants, so did new Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like the influx of people from, LA and New York yeah. and all of these other abroad, places sure. in the past two decades like that is that is like that is contributing yeah um yeah it's easy to think that it's destroying mm-hmm. something because it's in in a way it's taking the place of like what I knew yeah. but in general people and myself included have a lot of faith in just sort of the the land Mm -hmm. and the spirit that just like Mm -hmm. comes out of the land. And I still feel it when I go there, even though like, um, it's, it's, you know, I, it's harder to get my bearings. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It does. And actually, I mean, it ties into one of the biggest questions in, uh, food right now is, the concept of a cuisine from a place and um, provenance and like origin stories, holding that in one hand, the importance of keeping things the same, the importance of pizza napolitana always using the tomatoes from Etna and the, and the buffalo mozzarella and, you know, very specific 
instructions, let's say, versus a spirit of innovation and um, uh, evolution and all of that, the importance of both, I and mean, we have to hold them both. But I think both are really important. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, the the housing projects that got raised, like, yeah, raised a lot of um, family culture and... Mm-hmm. And just memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of our favorite places to eat when we go back uh, is an Indian restaurant. And one of the best things on the menu is a gumbo <laughs> that has <laughs> lots of Indian influence. Yeah. And it's, I still f- yeah, it's. I still feel like you know where you are when you're there mm-hmm. in a way that you don't always know where you are in other places mm-hmm. if you're eating or talking to someone or mm-hmm. standing on the corner, you know? Yeah. You always know where you are. That's very centering, and, and that's cool to think. I remember I've shared this before on the podcast, but um, my husband and I spent a lot of time in New Zealand, and where we were living, the wine was almost all whites, I mean, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, Chenin Blanc, and um, the only red they had was Pinot Noir, and it was extremely light because it's cold there. Just stuff doesn't ripen the same. So we went um, down further south where it was warmer, and the first winery we went to, we had Syrah, and both of us, we just looked at each other and were like, it's home, it's the taste of you know, where we live in California Mm -hmm. and that centered us, you know, it gave us our GPS, like our radar again of where we were. And there is something important about knowing where you are Mm -hmm. with that. That's a great way to say it too. Um, with gumbo, you, so you can't have New Orleans gumbo here unless you make it yourself as, I mean, I, I, maybe there's a place that does it and forgive me if I'm missing that place or those places, but, um, assuming you're just making it at home, I mean, how do you replicate that? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked because I do make it at home. And when I first moved here, I would mail order, well, mail order, that's a very old term, but I would, um, <laughs> from a catalog, <laughs> I would call up uh, a sausage place in Laplace, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and have them send me andouille, smoked andouille, and it's delicious, and I still like it, and mm-hmm. if somebody brought me some, I would make a gumbo the next day, but um, there was one year when, I mean, there, it it wasn't packaged well and Mm. it spoiled. I mean, it smoked, um, but it sat in the mailbox for too long. Anything can spoil. Yeah. Yeah. And I say one year because I always make gumbo for Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was for Christmas Eve and I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't have the right sausage and sausage is key Mm -hmm. for a chicken sausage gumbo, um, to get that flavor. But I got some linguisa from Catania brothers. Yep. Yep. And, it was so delicious. It has different flavors. Like I'd never had exactly those flavors in a gumbo before, but it worked so well that yeah. that's like what we prefer now, hmm. which isn't to say if I went to New Orleans, I want to eat that. Yeah. But it's like, I feel like it made me feel so much more connected to this place. Yes. Catania Brothers, you can't to get be much more able to, right. legit than that. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to like incorporate some of this place into this dish that is so of my heart and my family's heart. Um, and I also order filet, but there was, I mean, I mean there isn't, so filet is the, um, the cured and ground leaves of the sassafras tree. Mm. And I like to use that in my gumbo and I haven't found a local source of that, but you can buy it at food for less, Mm -hmm. which I also found out in a panic. Um, (laughs) one time when my, the filet I ordered had been ground with cloves. Oh, and it, I opened it up. I'm like, 
it smelled so, it smelled like cloves, not filet, and I was like, yeah. oh my god, where am I going to find filet? So you find your way, and one interesting thing is that <clears throat> I was telling a friend about the linguisa uh, mm-hmm. discovery. And he said, and a friend in New Orleans who's married to a woman who's from an Indian family. And he's like, oh, well, my mother-in-law is from a part of India that used to be part of the Portuguese empire. Mm-hmm. And when she makes gumbo now, so this is like this, you know, woman from mm-hmm. India, when she makes gumbo, she makes it with um, Portuguese sausage that she makes. Which is the same origin of our Catania brothers linguisa yeah that is crazy and so I'm like there are, I sometimes I've been <laughs> feeling around. I've been feeling lately like I've been thinking about gumbo a lot because I really want to write sort of a follow-up chapter to yep. the book and I'm, I have a very hard time because I have this like digital folder on my laptop that is just like filled with information mm-hmm. but I just keep gathering more and I'm like I think gumbo's the moral to my every story hmm. um and that sort of felt like that when he told me that I'm like oh well it's such a uniting dish mm-hmm. and culture I'm like so now I'm in San Luis Obispo making this gumbo with mm-hmm. this locally made sausage that's made in like a Portuguese, you know, has Portuguese origins. And I'm connected to this woman who's from Goa. (laughs) Oh, Goa. I've always wanted to go there. Yeah. She's from Goa and she emigrated first to Houston and then to New Orleans. And she's making gumbo in a really similar way. And we have this like connection. It made me so happy. Well, and you talk about in the gumbo chapter how it can almost kind of be anything. Like Mm -hmm. it really has so many different manifestations. So why not do it in your San Luis Obispo style that has that like full 360 um, connection to the rest of the world, really? It's true. And I have the benefit... Um, of, so if you're from Louisiana, there's like one way to make gumbo. Oh, okay. And that's how whoever it was in your family. Oh, well, made yes, it right. And taught you to make it. And it is sacred mm-hmm. and you will like go to the mat with anybody who disagrees with that way. <laughs> and if your person didn't put tomatoes in their gumbo, then tomatoes don't belong in gumbo. Mm-hmm. And if your person never put a shrimp and chicken together, like that is sacrilegious. Um, but I have the benefit of not, um, well, I mean, you know, it's a disadvantage, but also a benefit of not like learning to make gumbo for my grandma. Yeah. I learned from studying it and I did a lot of oral history, gumbo related oral history and just saw that like truly every rule I've ever heard about gumbo is broken by someone who, you know, yeah. lives in a, on a different bayou. Mm. And um, <laughs> so I have no problem uh, being a little bit elastic in my yeah gumbo making. That's awesome. Um, where are you with writing right now? So that my writing is something that didn't really, um, transition very well Mm -hmm. (laughs) with Mm -hmm. me. I should say my writing for publication. I haven't written very much for publication since I moved here. I started teaching life story writing, like memoir writing classes through Cuesta's community program. Awesome. I've been doing that for about four years. Um, So I do a lot of writing Mm -hmm. and I do a lot of memoir type writing, but it hasn't really, anyway, it hasn't made it into the public sphere. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Fine? Not fine? Um, Not fine. Mm well, I mean, I really like my work with them, but I wish that I could find my voice, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, still finding my voice, I think, after having, because I feel like, of course, I could have come here and started writing about food or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's, a, there are a lot of stories here yeah. in this area, but I think I, um, 
I really consider myself more of a uh, New Orleans and Southern writer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize that until I moved here. Like, I feel like I lost my beat. Mm-hmm. And I'm, re- I'm still refinding it. I'm yeah. a very late bloomer <laughs> in like every part of my life. I'm a slow processor, so it's still sort of happening. Yeah. Well, when you invest so much of yourself in a place, I mean, none of what you're saying is surprising to me. It's just hard if you are trying to find your voice and you want to continue to write. Yeah. What, what is the subject matter here, you know? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I love cooking here. It's not mm. that I don't um, appreciate the bounty of this place. I mean, I really love cooking here. Yeah. It's just a joy to get my vegetable box every week and to, um, yeah, I mean, that is very different from what my life was like in New Orleans. Um, so, yeah, it just doesn't necessarily translate. It doesn't necessarily go with me to the page. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right now, I would say ninety, 90%, 95% of what I write is um, like copy, not for publication. And uh, I've kind of designed it that way and because I just wanted to work for somebody else a lot of the time. And I got tired of pitching. That's, I, I, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at pitching. (laughs) I know it's a whole skill. It's a, it's its own skill and I'm not great at that at all. So at this point I'm thinking more and more about just self-publishing something to have, to have a place to put it all. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that I still want to say still. I talk like I'm like 90 years old. There's a lot I still want to say. And so, yeah, coming around to that and obviously having children and having a family changes your availability for that mm-hmm. and your availability to stay up at night. <laughs> I know. It's That's when sad. I used to do all my writing was yeah. like at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, get back to it when, you know, when, when the time is right, get back to it because it's just lovely and, um, as lovely as it is to read, I know it's 10% better even to produce it. I know that the, the joy of writing isn't in the publishing so much as it is in the writing itself. So Yeah, they both, yes, you know, as well as I do. That's really true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I still process my life through writing, but um, yeah, it would be nice to find my p- public-facing voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me, I think I probably have a guess, but if it was the last day of your life and you wanted to celebrate, what would you eat and drink and who would you be with? So I was anticipating this question. Yes. And it sounds like I'm just um, telling a story here. But first of all, it would be bread and salted butter. Oh. Like really, if I could only choose one thing. Yeah. What kind of bread would would it be? That would be it. Um, well, you know, sourdough. Yeah. Which is also, when I first moved here, I would ask people, what is like, what is the local food? What's the local food? And people had a hard time answering that question. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I anticipated, I I interpreted it to mean that there wasn't one. Oh, well, shame on them because there is. (laughs) But there is. And slowly, I, I, you know, I'm like... But I think maybe I also didn't totally understand because people would say things like, well, I think tri-tip and also fish tacos. And I was like, what? <laughs> that is such a conundrum. What's so cool. So anyway, but sourdough bread yep. is another, is like yeah. so of this place. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, so I think thanks to my life on the Central Coast, it would be mm-hmm. sourdough. Um, but of course it would if I could have like more than that, yeah, whatever you want. there yeah. would be a gumbo. Um, and my gumbo isn't my favorite gumbo mm-hmm. necessarily, but I think it would be a gumbo that I made mm-hmm. because it would be, I'm going to cry, but like the, the moral of my story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have all the people, all my, all my people. 
And I probably, this is really boring, but I probably wouldn't. I do drink, yeah. but I'm not a good drinker. Yeah. And I wouldn't want, <laughs> I, w- I would want to like take it all in. I would yeah. have be ha- drinking like herbal tea or something just so that oh, I look how cute you could are pay attention. With your tea. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I appreciate the fact that it's not, um, you know, it's not simple or cut and dry with you. I appreciate that there is so much nuance and there's heartache and hope in every transition that you've made, including the one to here. And I'm really grateful that you surfaced for me. Um, I mean, if nothing else, I just have a, a new book that I really love and um, and a friend that I can sit next to at the Performing Arts Center yeah. and see at the farmer's market. So, Well, you know you're coming over for gumbo now, right? I am ready. I am ready. It is happening. Okay. Ready. I'll, I'll bring the tea, the herbal tea. Yeah. <laughs> and no, the sourdough. If, it, if it's not my last meal, I'll have some local wine. All right. Well, I'll bring that then. <laughs> anyway, of Sarah, <laughs> it's so lovely to have you at the table and... Um, yeah, just wish you the best and keep us posted on your next stuff. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate it. That's a wrap for this episode of Consumed. Thanks so much to Chris Lambert, who edits the podcast, and to you for listening. If you want more info about Consumed or any of my guests, visit letsgetconsumed.com. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.